0: Preventing suicide is one of society's greatest challenges. That's why the Flint Hills Volunteer Center has developed this Suicide Awareness PACT podcast. PACT stands for Prevention, Awareness, Compassion, Training. This suicide awareness-packed podcast will feature personal stories and professional perspectives. This podcast series is funded in part by the Kansas Health Foundation, AmeriCorps Seniors, and the Greater Manhattan Community Foundation. Our hope is to touch hearts and provide hope amidst despair. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts and share them with those you know that are seeking help and hope. Our website and contact information is included in the show notes.
1: Lori, we recently uh, visited with uh, Pastor Troy Hartman at Rock Hills Church and uh, brought a a faith-based component to drastic things that that can lead people to thoughts of of suicide or feeling little purpose, if any. Today, we're going to have another faith-based perspective. And uh, we brought along uh, a friend of mine because uh, I've actually appeared on on her video series. Melanie Nord is with First Methodist Church here in Manhattan. It's a delight to have you in, Melanie. Thank you for being a part of our Suicide Pact Awareness uh, podcast.
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Yes, thank you. And it was great great uh, conversation we had with uh, Pastor Tori and, and him sharing his story. And we thought, you know, we'll take it at another angle for someone that's actually led services for those that have died by suicide. When
3: we as pastors, or I also work for local funeral homes, so we'll um, either get called uh, right as a suicide happens, and and then we're able to step in and provide pastoral care, or you know, if it's for the funeral homes, we're just there to be another layer of care that that family receives. And, and it's tough, you know, any death without preparation or notice, is tough. Um, and so you really are trying to help that family walk through a lot of realities and both kind of sit in the pain and the shock of what's just happened. But then unfortunately, with the way that our society's worked up, uh, when there is a death, there's also a series of, of decisions and questions and and things that, that they have to make anywhere from funeral homes to types of services and all of that. So it's an incredibly traumatic time for a family and i think it is difficult that there are so many complicating factors at this time where they're just trying to wrap their heads around
2: unless you've been through a lot of people under understand that because that's that was it for me yeah. it's like you know your phone is ringing non-stop because people are calling you not and talking. And you've got to go pick out a plot you've got to plan this you got to do this yeah. you got you know and, and it was it's a lot Dealing with what you've just gone through to have to make those decisions, and I made decisions that now I wished I had made differently. You yes. know, but you're in you're you've got that short amount of time to get it all in, and I I keep saying that the first two weeks you know, you're so tied up, you have family in, yes. you know, you're making decisions. And then when that two weeks is over, that's when you are all alone. And that's when all of these thoughts, you know, come in. So do you notice things like that?
3: Yes, I think, well, what I've been surprised is that the trends that i found are that most families aren't going to remember a great deal of what happens those first days and weeks. And it, it, they're just not going to be there. So now I know enough to be able to the last, uh, Death. I, I handled what had happened to be a suicide. Uh, just even telling the family, this seems so intense right now, but there will be big pockets of this you don't remember. And the mother found a lot of comfort in that. Um, and then I think it's tough. I had a professor say, um, if you say the right thing, Nobody will ever remember. If you say the wrong thing, they'll never forget it. That's right. And so I think that in the church world, we call it the ministry of presence. But I think as we're with these people in the days and weeks of their loss, uh, that ministry of presence is powerful. Uh, It's less about what we say and what we do, what we show up. Like we have a woman at our church where what she does is that uh, she's even brought extra refrigerators because maybe when the death happens, casseroles, all this food arrives. Where are you going to put it? And then she also always does a basket with just paper goods, toilet paper napkins and that's what she does she leaves a note and says'm I'm, I'm gonna call you in two weeks and I think it's stuff like that that can be really powerful too yeah
2: I, I think you have to give them that little window of time to calm down I know to this day what I do and I have somebody that I know has lost a child or, or yeah. a loved one you know i I wait and mail my card or, or talk to that person you know two two weeks later because that's when reality really reality doesn't set in those first couple of weeks so. yeah
1: how does your message? at a service for someone who has died by suicide differ from a message who, of someone who may have died by natural causes?
3: Uh, my philosophy is just always to honor two things, uh, how the person lived during their time on earth. And then the second thing I really wanna honor is uh, what is the family wanting this service to achieve? Um, and so I don't have set restrictions on what I wanna accomplish with that service. I mean, I have freedom with the United Methodist background. Um, we have real, um, strong stance on grace and love and acceptance. And and so we're not uh, worried about heaven and hell. We're not worried about professions of faith so much. And so that gives me some freedom to really think about how are we going to celebrate their life and what message do we want people to leave with? So with some families who um, their loved one died by suicide, we're just wanting to sit in that pain. We're wanting it to be a grieving experience that we can all have together. With other families uh, that are touched by suicide, we might want To say, you know, we can hope. They are in heaven and we are blessing that. And that gives us hope even to this day. There's even one family. That I thought it was really brave and powerful of them. They wanted to really talk about um, if anybody in that space was feeling themselves like they had depressive or suicidal thoughts, that it gets better, that this family wanted to offer themselves, reach out to us. We want to be there. If you ever feel like that, call us. Um, And even each family member stood up and said that during the service. So that was a unique one. and I was just surprised by their how courageous they were with being able to say that so soon after. So I think it's really a good, efficient um, will um, honor that person and really work with the family.
2: Yeah, that that reminds me. Uh, We are part of the Yellow Ribbon Suicide Prevention Program. uh, And one of two here in Kansas, Dodge City, is is the other one. And that's what the founders, Dale and dar Emmy had said, too. uh, When their son died, um, he had a yellow Mustang. And and the the students, his his high school friends, uh, made yellow ribbons and was handing these out with a card. Call if you need Help and and gave that number, and immediately someone reached out. So it's just give that's what we're trying to do is give that those numbers out, give this, we're here to help, you know. And they're like their message is it's okay to ask for help. And that's one thing we're trying to avoid is the stigmatism of that. And it's okay to reach out, reach out to your pastor, reach out to someone who's been through it.
1: What advice do you give to families who are grieving and potentially a very sudden? passing of their loved one.
3: We have wonderful grief support groups in town, but a lot of times you won't feel ready for those the first handful of months, if not year. I think the main thing is really for them thinking about who is their support system, leaning on that. Uh, Sometimes if the family is just trying to survive day by day, it's reaching out to their friends, reaching out if they are in the church, the Sunday schools, reaching out. I mean, even the funeral directors, I feel like in our Manhattan area, go above and beyond. They notice, um, they see, they help us as pastors respond. And they're really skilled about being able to provide that aftercare. A lot of them do the blue Christmas services and whatnot. So um, I think it's really helping them. And especially with the size of the congregation I have, you know, we're more of the first responders, firefighter um, efforts, and then we have to leave and put out the next fire. So that's something that keeps me up at night because just by the uh, volume of people, it's difficult to provide that. Uh, so we have skilled volunteers that will take over and check in with the people. And I think it's just okay to be open with your friends. They're going to want you to rush through your grief, but it's okay as you and I have talked about, Dave. It's okay to do what you need to do in the interim time to get by and then to say, ah, today's a bad day."
1: I think one of the things that that I stress to people who, and I visit with a lot of people who have, you know, lost loved ones and yeah. and, I, and I feel that that's, you know, very therapeutic and empowering for me. But one of the things that I'd like to remind everybody When I talk to them, it's just like you know, take a look around at the the people that are assembled there at that service. Yes, go through the guest book. When there's a receiving line, remember who these people are. Many of them will say, "What can I do to help?" Yes, and it's okay to let them help. And this is one of the things I think a lot of people. It's just like it may be a stubbornness. Yeah, it may just not be uh, okay. I don't want to deal with other people right now, but it's like these are people that want to help, and they are grieving for you and they want to help you in your grief by mowing your lawn or taking your car to get it washed or coming up and yes. and helping you with laundry, whatever the case may be. You talked about your little brigade of people coming in with paper <laughs> towels and stuff. and um one of my wife's uh, very good friends was the first person at the door, and she had a crate full of paper towels and toilet paper and cleaning supplies, and she just went to work. I think she did seven loads of laundry <laughs> because uh, you know uh, it, it just it made such a big difference, and it lightened my load—not just a, a grieving spouse, but a parent of a grieving daughter who was ten. Yes, and and those things are highly impactful. So oh, I think it's okay they are. to say I need some help.
3: I think definitely, and I've been surprised by being a pastor. July will start my 11th year, just in this role, and then working with Funeral Homes so closely. I mean, I think we have to be honest with ourselves and realize our society is a really tough society to live in. Um, I think everybody is struggling with something, whether it be grief, whether it be... Um, making their rent, uh, poor rental conditions, I think whether it be um, medical bills that are causing them stress, I think the only person who's not struggling is the one we don't know very well, uh, enough for them to open up about that. So I think once we realize and give ourselves permission to realize everybody's struggling, and then it maybe it will open us up more to say, you know what, I do need help mowing my lawn. Um, I am struggling with X, Y, and Z this month. And I think if we could be better about that as a society and a community.
2: Yeah and and I think it's is allowing that space too because I know after my son's uh, passed the someone from the funeral home reached out and a grievance counselor but I was still all those emotions, the anger, the frustration, you know. So, and, and at that point, I was frustrated. <laughs> so, we would call me, and so that's when you mention the time. Yeah, you've, you've got to let them have that 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 time, you know, and yeah. stuff. Um, because I I remember back then, too many people had questions and and asking how my son died, and you know, it just kept everything going. So, my sister pretty much took over, and if people wanted to deliver food and all that, they had to go to her house because I didn't want people just showing up with food at my house and then getting in a conversation when I didn't want to see anybody. Yes. And so that's and having that support is really great, but also respecting, you know, some boundaries and understanding, you know, we all grieve differently. We do.
1: We haven't talked much about your role as a pastor at First Methodist Church. You have a new service that you're providing.
3: Yes, just doing so many services in the community, you know, uh, it's becoming mo- majority of the funeral services I do and weddings I do are for people outside of the church. And we're one of the larger churches in Manhattan. Uh, another trend I was seeing is that I was starting to get frustrated coming in too late to these death situations or suicide situations. And I felt, I really felt called to have a, more of a role in the prevention of some of this. Why are people feeling like there's no hope for them? And I started to really think about uh, the Christian message that I hear so often, and it was starting to feel like God's love was a little bit conditional. You know, oh, God loves you and gives God's grace if you do X, Y, and Z. And so I kind of thought, oh, maybe we we have a hand in People feeling a little boxed in or like there's a lack of freedom or or ability for them to thrive. So, I've started this next generation movement. We are trying to create a worship service that's truly open to all. Uh, We have a statement of non discrimination and inclusivity uh, that we have right there on our website. So, some people might not feel, is this church going to be a safe place for me? Some people have, we're seeing this huge trend of religious trauma. I'm working on a book right now called The Trauma That We Taught, and it's looking at in the 90s especially in the, with the Nancy Reagan, she did a lot of really incredible things and she channeled churches like no politician had ever before. And so we see a lot of trends um, as far as a mainline Christian movement, mainline church movement at that time. And I think it was unstudied. Uh, we didn't know a lot about it. And really we're seeing people like myself, I would, would divulge, I feel like I have religious trauma that I've had to recover from. And we're seeing this play a really huge role in mental health um, as far as even seeing some suicides attached to this, uh, which I just think, ugh, to think that ever anything that the church or or my ministry would ever do that would make people feel that much like they don't have hope. So the Next Generation movement was born out of that. And I'm excited to see where we can go with it. And it's neat because I've already seen um, some people that I've met through funerals and weddings. They came to our last worship service. I'm just trying to, uh, rather than make the young people of today adapt to the church. I'm trying to adapt church to what I'm learning about the young people today and my peers.
1: You also have a video series that you've started, and yeah. I'm proud to have been one of those who was yeah. interviewed uh, what seemed like a really, really long time ago, and it and uh, uh, we had quite a conversation. But tell us about uh, Slow Spirit Sanctuary.
3: Yeah, then I have the Slow Spirit Sanctuary, which is a, a kind of a spirituality page. So I think that There are ways that maybe mainline Christianity or a church is just not going to reach certain people. And so I thought I have to find a way to reach people who need spiritual care, who need soul care, who are interested in uh, growing closer to that loving energy that connects us all, growing closer to a creator or creation and nature, um, in a different vehicle, so especially during COVID, I created this social media platform, and we have book studies, and we have people from a variety of states participate. We have video series that address um, some various things, and and so I'm really hoping that that's just another way that meets people where they are, where they are, and gives them some hope or some support. Because I think if people, I who I I am who I am today because of some pastors that have been in my life, some good pastors, and you know, some bad pastors have made me how I am too, (laughs) and I'm healing from that. But um, I can't imagine doing my life without that sort of support. So I just feel bad for uh, people who don't have that person, where when you look around and you don't see any friends, you don't see teachers, you don't see that one safe person, your family member, I just hope that anybody through the Slow Spirit Sanctuary or next generation would say, I can call Melanie, you know, I might not know her very well, but I can Facebook message her and say, Oh, I'm really struggling.
2: You know, and and I think that's that's so true. When I went to the uh, training in Colorado for the suicide prevention, uh, this young girl got up and spoke and I believe she was around 16 at the time. And she had Talked about being bullied in school. Well, yeah. one of the, the the students who's part of our Yellow Ribbon program noticed, you know, some signs, and they had like these little business cards with a "It's okay to ask" and with a phone number, and so she went up, and handed it to her, she said, "You know, if you ever want to talk, you know, I'm I'm here for you." Well, the girl reached out to her and talked to her they become friends and now this girl is now a trainer and so yeah and so it's like i i think that is so good especially with the way we are now with things going on with teenagers and and young kids and the suicide rate getting much younger for for kids uh it's like we've we've just got to start focusing on 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 our kids
1: how do you reach out to individuals you know that are struggling with thoughts of suicide?
2: For me, what I hope
3: is working is setting that framework or that groundwork and kind of like you've discussed, just that they would know that I can be one of the safe people that they can call. Um, I know during, I'll put it on my social media, if you ever feel hopeless, please know, reach out to me that I'm a safe person. And I think that's a lot of what your video series is doing, It's just reminding people that there are safe places that they can reach
1: Melanie, let's also share something that um, I think a lot of people don't realize. The pastors have struggles too.
3: I have been a pastor. uh, July 1st starts 11 years, and it was about gosh, six years in, I went through a divorce. And I had always known people who had had divorces. And for me, I just found it to be just one of the most intensely painful periods of my life. Um, And I had, I think in hindsight, I didn't realize at the time I was going through a really depressive, um, suicidal-ish phase. I had two children at that time, and they were with me uh, most of the time. So I, I was surprised because my feelings would be shut up, turned on, and turned off. So I'd go to work, you know, grind, do what I needed to as a single parent, you know, get it done. And then with the divorce, you know, you're going through this intense pain. and much like we've talked about with you know the death and then a funeral, you're also having to go through this legal process that is even more painful. Um, so I was felt a level of suffering I was totally unprepared for. And then, as I was talking, it was. Kind of, I had this moment where I just kind of fell onto the floor in my bedroom and it was like Tuesday at two o'clock. And I remember thinking, I know I need help. Uh, I'm feeling so depressed. I don't know how I'm going to, you know, take care of my yard and maintain my house and pay the bill. So I I just knew I kind of needed somebody to be with me. And I just looked and I thought, Every friend I know right now is working. Uh, Everybody's at school, shuttling around, doing different things. And for me, I realized that I needed a therapist or somebody like that who that I could know was going to be there, you know, almost with a contractual agreement. And then I was privileged enough to where I could afford that in that interim period to some extent but it is so expensive and i think that that's that's another thing too we've got to figure out
1: figure out a financial yeah
3: financial backing
1: but, for for some of these but things. yeah
3: but i do think people want their pastors to be infallible and perfect and my pastoral ministry has really negatively affected my mental health at sometimes because you've got all these people that want your care um, and you're always feeling like you're letting somebody down and just stretch those so, so thin because by the sheer numbers of your congregation, you can't know where everybody is at all times. And um, COVID is complicated, all of that. So it, I think that uh, people need to remember that we're, we're humans too. And we've gotten to this profession because we love people and we care about people. And so uh, we know we come up short and that's painful for us. And and then we get reminded that we're coming up short. And so I, it's stressful. I think any um, pastor, now I'm projecting what I think onto other pastors, but I think therapy or counselor or spiritual support is important.
1: And you made mention prior to our recording here in the podcast that the suicide rate among pastors is is one of the highest.
3: It is. It, it's really high. Yeah, I have a friend who's uh, becoming a pastor, and she's been really shocked by the amount of negative feedback uh, she receives, and now she's included. And I think emails has exacerbated it because people can think, I'm upset right now. And I read this really interesting article that talked about uh, pastors, too, you know, there's no level of decency with how you talk to them. Um, you know, you can only talk to your boss a certain way. Usually with a family member, you have to cer- talk a certain way. I think but pastors, you know, that connection to God or something kind of sometimes can open up um, Pandora's box for what they feel. And the level with which, you know, when we fail at something or when we let somebody down, I think people feel that also as a failure of God
2: or, you know, um, I don't know. Even you're sharing all of this information. Um, that's what I wanted to in doing all these podcasts is that we all have feelings we yeah. all have emotions we all grieve differently um and it and it's okay and it's this i'm hoping because of all the different avenues that we're providing during these podcasts yeah. that people are going to see we're all human mm-hmm. you know and and so i i appreciate you coming on and 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 talking to us
3: oh yeah of course thank you for having me
0: We hope you or someone you love can benefit from this series. If you need help, reach out to the many resources available. Many are listed in our show notes. The Flint Hills Volunteer Center Suicide Awareness Packed Podcast Series is funded in part by the Kansas Health Foundation, AmeriCorps Seniors, and the Greater Manhattan Community Foundation. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and share them with those you know that are seeking help and hope.